Hi, I'm Chester Elton, co-author of Anxiety at Work, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Chester Elton. Chester has spent two decades helping some of the world's most successful businesses engage their employees to execute on strategy, vision, and value. He's been called the Apostle of Appreciation by Canada's Globe and Mail. He's a Wall Street Journal best-selling leadership books, including All In, The Carrot Principle, The Best Team Wins, and Anxiety at Work. His books have been translated in more than 30 languages and sold more than 1.5 million copies worldwide. He's often quoted in publications such as Washington Post, Fast Company, New York Times, and has appeared on NBC Today, ABC, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and more. Chester lives in Summit, New Jersey, and is here to talk about his new book, Anxiety at Work. Welcome, Chester. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Chester, it's great to have you on the show. Tell me, when you were growing up, Who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Growing up, there's no question it was my dad. I have four amazing older brothers as well, but there's no question in my life and my brother's lives, the image of John Dalton Elton looms large. Give me an example of something you think of that really represented his influence in your life growing up. No, my father always assumed positive intent. He didn't judge people. He had a wonderful saying. He'd say, Chesh, you be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. And what I loved about him is whether he was parking his car, the parking attendant, or somebody was bagging his groceries, or captains of industry, he talked to everybody the same. Everybody was valued. And because of that, people loved to be around my dad. You never wanted to disappoint my dad. He was kind. He was generous. And what's interesting is the brothers, we were talking one time. We said, what are some of the greatest lessons that dad taught us? And I think it was my brother, Kim, who said, he taught us how to love our wives. Mm. He taught us how to love our kids. I would be sitting with my dad. My parents were married for 65 years. Oh, that's fabulous. And my mother, Irene Tanner Elton, she would walk by. And if I was with my dad, he'd always nudge me and he'd say, look at your mom. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she talented? Aren't we lucky? That's wonderful. Now, as that influence became part of you, can you remember a time early in your career where that perspective, the ability to look for the best in others, that great empathy that he taught you, as well as the ability to encourage others, can you think of a time when you were at a choice point, maybe in a conversation, maybe you felt frustrated with somebody and suddenly you, you relaxed into a message or a lesson that your dad taught you, and you're able to use that to choose to appreciate or understand how that person was doing, and you made a different it changed the way you had that interaction. Uh, yes. Another another personage is another guy that looms large in my life is Kent Murdoch. I had worked in broadcasting. My dad was a broadcaster in radio and ran radio stations. And so we all went into that at one time or another. I left broadcast sales to work for a, a company called OC Tanner. And the CEO at the time is a guy named Kent Murdoch. We're still great friends. He's since retired. And, and there were times when, when Kent and I disagreed as to what we should be doing and where we should be going. Now, the golden rule is the guy who's got all the gold gets to make the rules. And so Kent's the CEO and I'm a regional sales manager in New Jersey. And why should he listen to me? Other than the fact that I was right, the the folly of youth. And we were talking about different situations. I won't get into the specifics, but it got pretty heated. And when we hung up, I had decided I was going to leave the company. It was it was that much of a deal breaker. And I slept on it. And the next morning, I called him back and I said, Kent, you know what? I was wrong on that. I, I understand your perspective. I can understand why you don't 
don't want to do what I want you to do. And more than anything, I want you to know how much I love and respect you. And it was so interesting. He said, Chester, I'm so glad you called. I didn't sleep all night. I was so worried about that conversation because I love and respect you too. There are things I can do and there are things I can't do. And I can't do this for you. And I hope that makes sense. I said, you know what? You don't win every fight. You don't win every battle. Our relationship is more important to me than that thing. Now, I'm paraphrasing with looking back on on the conversation. It was much more messy than that. That was the result. And since that conversation, we remained great friends. We still didn't agree on everything, which was fine. And he was the one that pushed me to start to write. He was the one that hired Adrian Gostick because Adrian's a writer to to start writing the books. And here we are 20 years later, and we've just finished our 14th book. And a lot of that due to Kent Murdoch, no question, to your point, the upbringing and channeling the great John Dalton Elton made that possible. It really is fascinating to look back. I get chills listening to these stories because when you look back on it, it was a huge inflection point. Your relationship was heading in a direction when you hung up initially. It was heading in a direction that was headed towards closure. It was headed towards discontinuity. And then that inflection point where you both became very open and honest and vulnerable with each other and said, oh my gosh, I was so worried. I really value you. It was that it was that appreciation and acknowledgement that really laid the ground for you to say, listen, I- I'm going to give on this one. You can't win all the battles. So I, I just thought that was wonderful. And I thank you for sharing that. Anxiety to bring us back to the point. Those are tough conversations. And they don't happen. I think they don't happen as often as they need to really bring about that kind of synergy that comes from those types of conversations. Let's look at where we are now, pretty much a year into the pandemic. What is the state of anxiety at work? From from your perspective, what would you say is the state of anxiety at work for people who have been in offices that are now working from home? Is it similar, more less, different. What do you make of it, Chester? It's so interesting that you asked that question. And before we started to record you and I had a wonderful conversation that it's been a year since it's been a long time. At the beginning of this, I don't think anybody thought this is, and it's going to be probably another six months, eight months, maybe another year. And it's really interesting. The state of anxiety has gone nowhere but up. It's really interesting. It is literally the number one issue in the workplace today. I was on an online conference. The head uh, CHRO for Cisco was on the call. And in their surveys, they asked people, where would you rank anxiety? It was the number one issue for 85% of their workers. That's a ridiculous number. It's it's over over 40% for millennials. Younger people are suffering from anxiety. And it's very interesting. People have asked, what's the difference between stress and anxiety? We use those words interchangeably. For me, is stress tends to be much more momentary. It's more of an event. There's a lot of stress and then it passes. Anxiety is that thing that's just always in the back of your mind. Blooming. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's always there. And we explore a a lot of those, the top reasons people feel so anxious. And it really was an interesting study. Our database, by the way, is over a million engagement surveys, over 90,000 of our motivators assessment. So this isn't just anecdotal that we write about. It's rock solid research and just take away from the fact that it is the number one issue in the workplace today. I think that, first of all, I love how you structured it in the book so that you've broken it down for managers to really understand what are the sources of anxiety. And I think that there are people, there are managers today who would say anything that causes stress could make you anxious, but that doesn't do justice to being able to articulate it in such clear ways, such as 
employees' uncertainty about the direction of the organization, how they're dealing with challenges, and how it affects their job security. That's just one. And I think that's one that everyone is struggling with now because you don't have the same cues as we did when we worked in offices. You'd walk by and you'd have coffee and you'd be able to meet in the, the kitchen and be able to just catch up with each other. Hey, how's everything going? How's that Simpson report coming? And you could tell by the looks on people's faces, it was much more established and people felt more certain because they could check in with each other in those normal routine ways that we no longer have. And one of the things I also want to take away and contribute here is the, the duck principle. That was something that you brought out in the book that was coined by Stanford University to describe how students at that very high-pressured university would look like ever, they've had it all together on their faces. They're very calm. They're going to their classes. They'll go to the library meetings, but underneath they are panicked. They're freaking out like a duck paddling madly underneath the surface of the water. So I think employees today are experiencing that and that symptom is very high. What is it that you can offer managers to help them think about and offer reassurance to counteract or as an antidote to that anxiety that almost universally workers are experiencing? Such a great question and really the basis of why we got into the work. Let me really to in a fabulous conversation that we had with Chris. Now, Chris is the founder and CEO of HR Leaders out of London. And a, a classic case of if you were to meet Chris, he's a hail fellow well met. He's positive. He's happy. He's an entrepreneur. He puts on amazing online conferences. Yeah, a, a huge pivot for you to put on amazing in-person conferences. And here's a guy that just looks like he's got it all together. And you can't ruffle him, nothing you can say that he hasn't heard before. And yet we started to talk to his partner about this book we were writing, Anxiety at Work. And he says, oh, you got to talk to Chris. He suffered his whole life. And as in a lot of cases with the duck syndrome, I would have never in a million years guessed that Chris was suffering from any anxiety. And so we had a very candid conversation as we interviewed him for the book. We He was our first interview for our podcast, Anxiety at Work. It was so fascinating because he's got a wonderful podcast, a couple hundred episodes and he confessed he goes I've never been a guest on another podcast ever so it was it was really it was really delightful that way but what he said I think is the story of many of us that, and particularly now in the new video chat world, whether it's Zoom or whatever platform you're using, in that little square, we look great. We look like we've got it together. We've got the great microphone. We've got the lighting. We've got the great backgrounds. And yet just to the left of that box, you have no idea what could be going on. Anxious about your health, an aged parent, how am I going to homeschool my kids and on and on. And yet in the little box, we look great. Chris's story, I think bears repeating. And then he said, I, I suffered my whole life and, and I lied about it because I, I, I didn't want to appear weak. I didn't want to appear that I was anything but completely together. And he said, because of that, my intentions were completely misinterpreted. I would leave the wedding reception early and people would think I didn't care about family. I would make excuses. By the way, his wife had no idea. His business partner had no idea. His closest friends had no idea. And he said, I'm just not feeling well today. I've, I've got another thing coming up. I'd like to be there. But just simply because he was anxious about being in big groups. He was anxious about being vulnerable. His story is remarkable in the fact that on his podcast with a CHRO of a major corporation, they were talking about anxiety and he admitted on the podcast for the first time. Now, as he tells the story, 
He does his podcast with his company. Now he's a small business owner, entrepreneur, 10, 15 people. And he said, when we do the podcast, the, the staff would listen in. We'd say, look, you got to be quiet. We're live. And he admitted to his anxiety. And then he realized where he was. And he turned around and everybody on his staff was looking at him with this like shock of disbelief. Here's the lesson. When the podcast was over, every one of them came up and said, me too. And, and even more importantly, I'm sure to Chris, is that they had that same sense of respect for him, if not more, because of him sharing what he was feeling, what he was dealing with. Because it's that that very common expression, heavy is the crown that the king wears. When you're the leader, you feel very isolated. You feel that's very difficult to share because you don't want people to know that you're anxious because it transmits. It's, is it from your research, uh, Chester, do you think that it's appropriate for, let's first talk about the necessity for it. The necessity to share that somewhere in your life is absolutely important. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. As soon as Chris was vulnerable, as soon as he related his anxiety, he became so much more human. He and, and he said, my fear was people would look at me as weak, as not competent, as defective. He said the exact opposite happened. Rather than people abandoning me, people rallied around me. They rallied to the cause. They said, you know what? I felt anxious. I know exactly what you're going through. Hey, thanks for sharing that with me. Next time you've got to leave early or next time, don't worry about it. We love you. We're cheering for you. He said, all those fears that I had were all unfounded. And it was remarkable. He goes, all of them, not just some of them, all of them. And my my life got exponentially better because my relationships were more honest. They were more vulnerable. And the people that really care about you because they care about you, they will always rally. It was a remarkable story that we have come to find is not uncommon at all. So let's talk in a practical way around what managers who are listening to this could take away from this. Is it something where managers ought to be asking different questions when they're connecting? Should they make it part of every meeting to have these kinds of questions? Or should they have separate times for people to check in? What have you found to be useful? And what does the research indicate in this area? Both. There's nothing wrong in a group setting by just saying, hey, I've been in many where people say, hey, just a quick health check. How's everybody doing? Any virus? And that's an easy thing to share at a high level. And yet we want to know, are, are you isolating? Uh, did you have to travel for work? Are, are you quarantining for a couple of weeks? Just so we know that's out there. So you, we don't think, oh, Bill's not pulling his weight. He should be doing this. And remember, he's quarantining. Let's give him a beat. I'll tell you, Derek, he's the CEO of Life Guides, a bigger organization than Chris's, right? And he said, I got in the habit of doing part two, just little one-on-one -on -one check in And I'll tell you a wonderful story that's a little bit heartbreaking. He said, we've got from right out of college to seasoned veterans working for us at Life Guides. And he said, I contacted a, a woman, a little bit older, her, her husband had passed away, proud grandma. And I just thought, you know what? In the meetings, I just noticed she was a little quiet. And this is, we're six, seven months into the pandemic. He said, I just want to check in on, uh, check in with you, just you and me. How are you doing? And she said, so thank you so much for the call. She got real quiet. She said, oh, my husband passed away. It's just me. And because of the pandemic, we're keeping it really close. She says, I'm a really a proud grandma. I haven't had a hug in six months. And that's what I'm struggling with. It, it says a lot about Derek that she would be that vulnerable with him. And it says a lot about Derek that he would call and say, hey, just worried about you. Anything I can do? And you know what she said? That you called and everything to me. Thanks for, and here's the tip for leaders out there. Thanks for listening. So often as leaders, we have people come in and they're angry 
anxious and they've got issues and we want to be problem solver. When you know what? When it comes to this issue, oftentimes they just want you to listen. You don't have to have all the answers. Just I want to highlight that, Eric, because I think that what I've heard from many managers and leaders is that they don't feel equipped to solve those problems. And for people listening, what you most need to do is listen and just ask and then listen. And that alone is very powerful for someone to hear without judging what's going on. What are you struggling with? How are you dealing with it? And, and just tell me the story about what's going on. What's it like to be you these days? Your story also touched me because I've also lost relatives during the pandemic to COVID-19. And it's very strange to not be able to grieve together. It's very strange to not have that sense of being able to be in a community the way that we normally do. And that affects people in their jobs and in their relationships. And none of us really know what's going on for each other until we take that step of asking and listening. So thank you so much for bringing that out. A lot of managers also have told me that they're very uneasy asking this question at the start of meetings because they don't know how it's going to affect the time of the meeting. If they need to make a decision on a product, if they need to review quality reports, if they need to take initiative and form resources and direct people to solving different things within their company, you don't want to take something like this and make it the first agenda item. So being able to take that away from the story of Derek, where he did it one-on-one, -on -one, gives people another avenue, another alternative to being able to attend to their people, build these relationships, and still maintain the cadence and the quality of the work that they're doing. Absolutely. What people are looking for is they're looking to be safe. We're humans. We're always on our guard. Where is it not safe? And if you think work is not safe, that adds a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. When you believe that your leaders really care about you and that it's a safe place to have these conversations, generally one-on-one, -on -one, and yet there are organizations that do it as a group, I think you, you, you find that those are the places that are attract great talent, keep great talent, and you get your best out of your talent. It's one of the reasons that Adrian Goss, who's my co-author and the brilliant writer behind the book, by the way, when you see Gostick and Elton, I, I want to make no bones about it. Adrian's the writer. I go to my high school reunions and they go, you're a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. I would have never guessed that. I said, I have a co-author and they all go, oh, oh, okay. Now I get it, right? In this book too, we've invited in Adrian's son, Anthony Gostick. And a lot of this is his research and some of it, his story. And along with that, we've created a safe place. We call it We Thrive Together Global, to a safe place online to talk about anxiety and wellness at work. So for those of you that are listening that are leaders, are you creating a safe place for people to talk and be a little vulnerable? Let's, let's be a little a diagnostic challenge. about that now. Two of the things that I think many leaders have found with people who are just checking in via video conference calls is that there are people who aren't speaking up, who used to speak up a lot when it was face-to-face, -face, when they were in a meeting, when they felt safe, they could look around, they could see how people were responding to what they were saying. And they had that safety of that feedback loop. And I've heard that people are not speaking up because they're afraid of being criticized and that they are also working very hard to create perfect work rather than work that advances the organization. Can you address that in what you found in your research to help managers recognize it and then address those two issues? Because I think that they're very closely aligned, don't you? Absolutely. Perfectionism we found was a huge cause of anxiety, especially, by the way, in millennials and, and Gen Z, this idea 
idea that my work has to be flawless. And what we've learned from the hundreds of interviews that we've done is perfectionism really is the enemy of productivity. We, we would find people were staying up all night to get that extra little one or two percent. And the message from a lot of leaders has to be, you know what? There are times when good is good enough. It just is. And by the way, something we learned from research we did for our book, Leading with Gratitude, is this idea of assuming positive intent lowers anxiety levels, particularly when it comes can you, to Can you define that for people who are listening and saying, I've heard positive intent, and I could infer what you're saying by that. But let's go a little bit deeper, Chester. These are people who are listening to this and really deserve the inside <laughs> scoop to give them a little bit more granularity with that. You bet. And Dura Noy, she's the ex-CEO of Pepsi. She said, when you assume positive intent about people, everything gets better. In other words, she says, I assume that 99.9% of people come to work every day wanting to do a good job. And in trying to do a good job, they're going to make mistakes. And that's fine. The message is you have a problem. You are not the problem. Assuming positive intent means that people really are trying to do the best they can. And in trying to do the best they can, they're going to make mistakes. One of my favorite CEOs is Gary Ridge of the WD-40 company. Everybody's got a can, right? The WD-40 lubricant. He said, we don't make mistakes at WD-40. We have learning opportunities. And I think that goes a long way to assuming positive intent. Now, back to perfectionism. Look, I know you're trying to make this thing perfect. It does not have to be perfect. It's good enough. Let's move on. And you're assuming all the good things that come with people that want to be great. And yet you're giving them the grace that says, hey, this is good enough. Let's move on. I'm going to give you some grace on this one. And I imagine that the important follow-up is what makes all the difference. It's not just saying it, but it's also demonstrating that behavior that it is okay to make mistakes and that will cover for you. We assume that you're doing your best. And if you need more help, if you need more time, you need to renegotiate that as part of your agreement. However, we're going to not criticize, marginalize, minimize, or criticize what you're doing so long as you're delivering and staying in communication. Aren't those the key elements that managers need to do to follow through with that positive intent? Absolutely. And, and the storytelling, as you mentioned, is so important. When a leader can tell the story of, look, I used to be a perfectionist too. And you know what I found? I wasn't getting anything done. Let me tell you about it and be very specific. Here's a project we were working on. And it was insane that we spent so much time on the color of the button on the app, red, yellow, green, orange. It, it didn't matter in the end. What mattered is we had a button. And that vulnerability, and you touched on communication, so important. Whenever you go through any kind of radical change, whether it's a merger or acquisition or a pandemic, a lot of leaders will say, gosh, sometimes I think I'm over communicating. I said, you know what? When you feel like that, it's probably about right. It's probably about right. Now, in tandem with that, not only do you have to accelerate and increase the ways you communicate and how often you communicate, is gratitude needs to go up. Now, you might find that a little interesting that we talk about gratitude gratitude and anxiety at the same time. Let's jump in and give people an example and a definition so they don't think that gratitude simply means nice job. It's more than the two words, nice job, isn't it, Chester? It absolutely <laughs> is. Adrian and I have spent 20 years uh, you know, studying culture and leadership and teams and anxiety. And the one thread that's through all of that is the best leaders, the best teams, the best cultures, the best organizations all had a tradition of gratitude. And while we wrote a book called The Carrot Principle, love that book. And it, it was more the ceremonial. That was more recognition. That was more kind of event-driven, which by the way, are important. But those rituals, those events are, are an important part of your culture. Gratitude to me is that one step further. That's the emotional connection. Those are the simple things. And yeah, great job is nice, 
it's, hey, how are you doing today? How can I help? Have I told you lately how much I appreciate the work you did on this project? It was not easy. You were the one that really pulled us through that, the, the genuine, the authenticity, that, that relationship. Gratitude to me is that next level of when people really know that you care about them. And so you can understand that if I'm feeling really anxious, a leader that steps in and says, hey, listen, I know you're going through a tough time right now. Look at what you've accomplished. Look how far we've come. Look at what you've done. And by the way, the best is yet to come. And I can't tell you, I love leaders that say, Bill, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have you on the team and to be going through this with you. What a difference that makes. Absolutely. Who doesn't want to hear that? And then you have leaders say, you can overdo it. I go, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) So that's interesting. When I hear people say that, I think they're afraid of losing control or they're afraid of thinking that, well, if I give them all this praise, I won't be able to direct them because they'll think they're beyond needing my praise. It's part of the relationship. It's part of being in communication with each other and strengthening that feedback loop, not necessarily just a one-off transaction. Wouldn't you say that when people are afraid of giving too much praise, it's a symptom of misunderstanding what appreciation really is and the role that it plays in effective management and leadership? Yeah, I couldn't say anything better than that. (laughs) I'm going to leave that right there. I I think you nailed it. It's back to my dad. You asked me at the beginning that the legends in my life and my dad is a legend. He had a great sense of humor and he was a great leader because he understood that it takes a collective to get things done. It takes a team. It takes a tribe, however you want to decide. And he said, Chess, he says, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. And he says that the good thing for you is that means you can walk into almost any room, anytime, anywhere. And it's so true. We talked to, to Chris Shembra. And Chris is a had a phenomenal career on Broadway. The shows he was involved in won all kinds of awards. He was the golden child and all this phenomenal success. And then it all came crashing down and he lost all of it. And it led to all kinds of things that if you follow Chris on the Instagram and, and read his books, you, you can delve into that. That's his story for him to tell. The part of his story I do want to tell is he said, how do I pull myself out of this? How do I get back to that happy guy? And so he'd gone on a trip to Italy and he loved Italian culture. And of course, if you know anything about Italy, food is at the center of everything. And pasta is a part of every meal, right? There's always some pasta. So he decided in his little apartment, he said, I I didn't have a lot of money. I'd lost a lot. What's the cheapest meal you can make? Absolutely. And he says, I played with a bunch of sauce. He's actually got his own sauce now, which I think is fabulous. And pre-COVID, he said, I'd invite people over and we would have gratitude dinners. And he wrote a wonderful book called Gratitude and Pasta. I love it. <laughs> and he actually even lays out the menu and the floor plan and the whole bit. And he said, we would bring people over and we would just talk about what we were grateful for and who we were grateful for. And for people that had left this realm, if we could talk to them now, what would we say? And to thank them. And he said, we had such meaningful and deep conversations. He said, and the, the dinner grew and grew and he's literally done hundreds of them. He does them for corporations now. And then COVID hits and he has these virtual dinners and they're fabulous. I've been to two or three. And now to your to the point we were talking about before we hit record, he's got people joining from all over the world. There's people from Russia and Singapore and South Africa and Canada and New Zealand. And, and he said, and we're having the same conversations. And he said, and it was the balm that healed my soul. I was anxious about everything. I was stressed out about everything. When I connected with my gratitude, that was what healed me and allowed me to get back. And, and he's another one. If you were to meet Chris Schreber, you go, that is the happiest guy I've ever met. And then you hear his story and you go, oh my gosh, all that 
that paddling, all that perfectionism, all that anxiety. And look at you now. Good for you, man. Good for you. Amazing. Chester, are you ready for my quest for the best lightning round? <laughs> yes. A little anxious to tell you the honest truth, but yeah, I'm ready. I appreciate that authenticity. I do. At the beginning of the interview, we talked about a person who influenced and inspired you growing up. What was a song that you loved as a teenager? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> always look at the bright side of life. I don't know if I was a teenager when they came out, but the Monty Python, always look on the bright side of life. Yeah, love that song. With the pandemic, people have had to come up with a lot of creative ways and pivot from all the ways that we've been used to getting our message out. Your mission is so important to help people address anxiety at work and embrace the power of gratitude. What have you found to be an effective way of getting your mission accomplished each week? I post a photo every day on LinkedIn of something I'm grateful for. And some get a lot of views and comments and some don't. Sometimes it's just for me. I love the engagement there. We've pivoted. We placed our bet on getting the message out on LinkedIn. We're business Business authors. That's more of a business community. We also, every other week, we post an article in the Gratitude Journal. And it's wonderful. We actually had uh, Anthony Gostick was our guest author and tremendous response about talking about your inner voice and how we should be kind to ourselves. Sometimes we're not kind to ourselves. We're, we're kind to everybody but ourselves. Another thing we've done, and, and this would relate to what we're doing right now, is we've started a podcast, Anxiety at Work. We drop it every Friday. And you know what? We've dropped five episodes. We've already had well over a thousand downloads. So we've had to be creative. Our way of getting the message out before was always the stage. We'd present at a you know, hundred conferences a year. So our stage now is our gratitude journal, our, our We Thrive Together global platform with mighty networks, with our daily posts. And, and so we, we've had to get a little more creative. And of course, we continue to write. People still buy books during the pandemic. And that's been a wonderful channel as well. What would you say has been the best hundred dollar or so purchase you've made in the last six months? My Yeti microphone. <laughs> It's just under a hundred bucks, really. And you know what? It's wonderful. I've bought a couple and I put them in different places that I know I'm going to be with. Video is great. And the other, that was more than a hundred dollars though, was the camera. So it's the microphone. As you on podcast, the quality of the audio is everything. How do you know that you're being successful as you live your life day to day? What's your personal definition of success? That is a very deep question. You might as well have asked me, what's the purpose of life on that one, <laughs> Bill? I, I, I think my definition of, of success is constant constantly evolving. I, I think the baseline for me is, do I have the love of the people that are most dear to me? My wife, my kids, we've got two wonderful grandchildren that live close by that are part of our bubble that we get to see. And and Adrian, my co-author, and some of the deep relationships. Uh, Christy Lawrence, who runs my calendar and has become one of my dearest friends, and, and so many people. I think that a life well-lived is a, a life of John Dalton Elton that he loved deeply and he was much loved. And uh, that's my definition. Just a lot of times people say, you've got to add this to your morning routine, or you've got to start doing this with a journal, or you've got to add these things to your life in order to be happier and more successful. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure and personal satisfaction? I love that you asked this question because one of the things that I eliminated was my alarms on my phone. And one of the habits I had was I would turn off the alarm and I would immediately go to my newsfeed. And you know what? That's a horrible way to start your day. And I got a tip from a friend that said, you know what? Don't engage with your phone for at least the 
the first 30 minutes of your day, if not the first hour. And that's something that I've eliminated. And then you know what? I wasn't, even after the hour, all of a sudden, I wasn't as eager to find out all the crazy and awful things that had happened in the world. And it really did reduce my stress and anxiety at the beginning of my day. So that was a great elimination. Isn't that something? Hey, just don't add clutter and mental trash to your head. And then all of a sudden you are able to be more focused and more productive and more engaging with people. That's a wonderful insight. So Chester, one more question before we sum up. And that is when you think about the kinds of ways that people need to bring appreciation into work and what you need to bring in order to deal with the anxiety at work and help others reduce that anxiety. What type of advice or suggestions do you offer people who fear the conflict or who fear getting responses that they don't know how to deal with? Anything that is an obstacle to them reaching out and connecting with others, as we've described earlier. I, I Another thing I've developed over the pandemic is to have a simple mantra. And I would c- encourage listeners to have that and make it a part of your daily ritual. Just a simple mantra to remind yourself about what's really important. I'll share with you mine, not that it has to become yours. We all have our own mantras. It's to be kind, to be grateful, and to be of service. I, I would add to that in the workplace, assume positive intent about people. My dad would always say, you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know what they're going going through. Give them a little grace. Be kind to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. And I think if you really do set out to be kind, the world is in desperate need of kindness. It just is. And to be grateful, not for what you don't have, but be grateful for what you do have, the relationships you've got. And then one of the greatest ways for me to tamp down my anxiety and stress is get out of yourself and be of service to someone else. Help out. Just help out. It's, it makes for a better day at work. And by the way, it makes for a better life. It- well, Chester, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. You've brought enormous insights that help, will help people tremendously. You start off making distinctions between stress and anxiety, where stress could be momentary events that happen in our lives. And anxiety is something that kind of follows you like a black cloud that also needs to be dealt with. You talked about examples of people at work who made those one-on-one check-ins like Derek and the value that he found in doing so. We talked about the ex-CEO of Pepsi who talked about positive intent and the ability to assume it's simply a choice that 99% of people 99% of the time are looking to do the right thing and make a positive contribution. You were able to bring to light the idea of questions about how Chris Sherma, Shembra, had such a great loss and then recovered so much in his life by having pasta dinners, pasta and appreciation dinners with people. And even the pandemic didn't slow him down. He continued to build on it. And it's an inspiring lesson for everyone listening. So for these and so many more reasons, Chester, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. Chester, it's been a delight for me as well. And before we say goodbye for now, where's a website that people could go to find out more about you and your work online? Give us just one because we will link to everything else. So just what's the one place that you'd want people to find out about? I'd say go to chesterelton.com. We're certainly linking to your personal website and we're also going to link to your social media as well as links to buy the book, Anxiety at Work, as well as We Thrive Together, your online community where leaders can learn more about how to support each other and effective tools for thriving together. Thank you again, Chester Elton, author of Anxiety at Work. Excellent. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop
develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.